Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. So... uh uh, tonight, really, in a nutshell, is going to be some thoughts about emotions and emotions in practice. Um, favorite story of mine is about, uh, I have so many heroes in psychology, one of them, Heinz Kohut, uh, psychologist in Chicago, one of the most important figures in discerning the treatment for narcissism. <laughs> But anyway, he was in uh, psychoanalysis for a long time, learning to uncover the uh, early childhood patterns that uh, essentially uh, motivated his behaviors. And he said that all the interpretations were correct, and all the interpretations only made him feel worse about himself. And that clearly wasn't the goal. Uh, What he said he wanted was simply a a therapist who would simply point out the resilience that was in him as part of his... I I don't want to be too wrapped about the words, but you could say some like core or some vital resilient quality in him that allowed him to survive the pains of his childhood, that allowed him to persevere, become a famous psychotherapist. And interpreting or understanding his patterns wasn't doing it, wasn't uh, allowing him to connect with that vital, resilient perseverance. Uh, It had to be something else. Increasingly, a lot of... uh, I'm a nerd and I read a lot of cognitive studies and while the cognitive therapeutic uh, traditions, modalities are very important and they're very effective in the short term but in the long term they show very scant um, ability to lastingly remove symptomology because they focus on the thoughts and the cognitive dissonance the way we think and they don't locate something far deeper that is energized, uh, mobilized, that is seized onto as a liberative quality. Today, in the therapeutic modalities, there are a whole host of new schools, SE, sensory motor psychotherapy, EFT, AEDP, they have a lot of acronyms. Um, But essentially they decentralize the idea that the the dominant or most important moment in the therapeutic encounter when we go and speak with someone and we start addressing our um, struggles and our challenges and our um, the avoidance patterns in our life and the patterns that activate uh, anxiety. Uh, 
it's not so much centralized around interpreting or understanding or coming up with a different view of ourselves that we can articulate, but more about connecting with something deeply vital, deeply animating that is, uh, precedes conscious thought. And this is important because uh, if there's one thing we know through all the schools of neuropsychology, and Justin and I were talking about that, and there's so many different views, but one of the, the most important uh, non-controversial views that is across all of the theories is that thought is the very last thing to arise in human behavior. It actually comes about after we make the decisions, the impulses to act. It's something that essentially is an add-on that happens late. In fact, thinking happens about a half a second after we encounter any stimuli, but the emotional activations and impulses that drive our behavior happen in one-tenth of a second. So there's the fast circuits are in one-fifth of the time creating all of the this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it, this is the way we feel about it, and this is what we're going to try to get done. And then, in four tenths of a second, the very slow processes of uh, essentially languaging try to create a, an understanding of why we're doing the things we do. But it's actually understanding and coming up with that uh, story the only real part that plays in behavior is at the very last moment it can stop us from acting out on a really stupid idea. Thought can inhibit at the very last moment an action if, it, if we think, oh my God, this is a really terrible idea. Wait, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna go out on a date with that person. They're clearly emotionally unavailable for intimacy. No, I'm gonna stop myself. So tonight, uh, I'm going to give a talk that will break down emotions and I'm going to use the format that many of us are aware of, the Four Noble Truths, kind of big in Buddhism. Uh, there's an issue, there's something that causes the issue, there's a way to deal with the issue, and here's how we deal with the issue. That's the basic format of the Four Noble Truths. and so. I'm just going to do the four truths of emotions. You heard it here first. <laughs> so we'll see how this goes. Um, the first <coughs> truth of emotions is that we are all born <clears throat> with a set of primary core survival emotions that are uh, to a degree universal, transcultural, <coughs> and everybody has their own list. There's varied lists from as little as four to as much as nine or ten. For tonight's purpose, I just will use joy, sadness, anger, fear, shock, disgust, excitement, and pride. You don't have to write that down. It's just my list. Every anthropological psychologist, evolutionary psychologist, and behavioral psychologist all across the line has their own set of what these universal core emotions are. Everybody agrees that they are 
uh, honed by evolution. We're all born with them unless there's a defect in uh, the way that we are neurally constructed. And that these core emotions are vital. They've been honed through millions of years of mammalian evolution and then through the last 200,000 years of our species to allow us to survive in the world with each other. In fact, if you think about it in terms of evolution, uh, we've had human emotions for at least 200,000 years. We've had language and logic for about 35 to 40,000 years. We did fine as a species survived some of the most uh, overwhelming conditions that we've faced. We've outlived Neanderthals who were bigger, faster, stronger, had bigger brains, could run faster, could kill us, but we outlasted them because we had emotions that were essentially toned to allow us to develop small, integrated, vital, resonant tribes where we could look after each other and we could withstand challenges. The Neanderthals didn't have these um, core uh, emotions. They didn't have the development of the prefrontal cortex that we had. They actually had brains that were far superior in sight, sound, spotting, prey, but they died out because they couldn't bond with each other. They didn't have the core emotions that were developed, the joy, sadness, anger, fear, that allows us to integrate with each other. These emotions uh, contain a lot, they pack in a lot of stuff. So each emotion contains gut feelings, which are alarms telling us that there's been a change in the world around us, either a threat, you know, suddenly there's a predator, or there's an opportunity for food. But by and large, most of the changes that create emotions, because we are a tribal packed species uh, that spent all of our species evolution in hunter-gatherer collectives, most of the these events that trigger emotions are changes in our tribal status. Somebody is being aggressive towards us, it triggers anger. Anger creates an internal feeling of uh, uh, energy, a heat, a, a, an impulse to push back, to fight, to beat off. It creates a desire to, to yell, to shout. That's the external signal to other people. It creates an impulse, an action impulse to fight. So in anger, which we all know, it contains a lot of things. A feeling to let us know that something's wrong, that somebody's being aggressive, that somebody's uh, in some way uh, encroaching upon our boundaries. It contains a message, a kind of want to shout, scream, tell someone to fuck off. And it even creates an action impulse that literally is to push back. Sadness is an alert that an attachment figure, someone that we depend upon, is not available or has changed their relationship with us in some way. Given how tribal and how 
a relational species we are, any loss of an attachment figure triggers deep sadness. So that contains a feeling, which is a heaviness behind the eyes, a a feeling, a loss of, of pleasure known as anhedonia, a sense of tiredness. It creates a, an expression, tears, uh, a cry, and it contains an impulse to act, which is to lie down in a, almost like a, in a curled up position to get help. Joy is an emotion that signals a new connection, a new status in our tribal relationships. It's a sense of, yay, I'm accepted, I'm loved. People, well, it was Sally Fields' line, people actually like me. It was a great line, actually, because that's deeply what we all want. She just had the guts to say it. But, um, or she said something like that when she won an Academy Award. So it's anyway, it's this, this deep uh, feeling of, of energy flowing up, a sense of, ease in the body, it releases opiates so the body feels less painful, it's the sense of animation, it creates an impulse to signal it, which is the smile, the laughter, the broaden and build, uh, as Barbara Fredrickson calls it, expressions, and it also creates an impulse to hug, to dance, to, I don't know, do something wacky, that's what I do when I feel joy. So you get it, uh, Emotions that are core emotions uh, are vital survival messages. They help us to adapt in a social landscape. They contain feelings that we need to feel to know the, the status and what, what's going on. They contain impulses to connect, to express the emotion, whether it's the tears, the the anger, the jaw locked, the sadness, the the joy, the smile, the shock. It all contains an external expression, an internal feeling, and then finally an impulse to act. Today, uh, attachment therapists even go so far to say is Emotions don't only contain those three factors, the internal feelings, the external expression, and the action impulse. They also might contain unconscious emotional beliefs. Some emotions contain the belief, I am loved, I am safe, I can relax, I am worthy. Other emotions contain the belief, I am unlovable, my feelings don't matter, I am not safe, I am bad, and so forth. So, there's nothing we can do about these core emotions. They are essentially the same as the Buddha's four no- the first noble truth in life there is dukkha. In this story, in life there is core emotions. You can't get rid of them. They're there for a reason. Trying to be without sadness, grief, uh, fear, shock, excitement, are, is essentially asking yourself to handicap yourself. If somebody can't feel their anger, they can't set boundaries, they'll be walked all over in relationships. If somebody can't feel their sadness, they'll never accept the loss. They'll wind up essentially uh, engaging in shallower and shallower 
connections where they'll never express their grief and therefore they'll never be truly known by another person. And so they're all vital for us. The second truth of emotions is that most of us cannot deal with our painful emotions and we try to survive without relying on them. We try to get rid of our negative, painful emotions. We don't want to feel our sadness, loneliness, our anger, our uh, whatever uh, emotion that is inconvenient in the social landscape. We learn to inhibit and, and interrupt our emotions. And uh, we especially learn to defend against the emotions that our parents in childhood or our caregivers or our siblings or our peers uh, found to be uh, unacceptable and uh, rejected. So if the child, when it expresses sadness, the parent or the teacher or the aunt or the, the, the friend turns away, looks exasperated, the child will feel ashamed and will cut off the sadness and will go into an inhibitory emotion. We'll talk about that right now. Inhibitory emotions are essentially secondary emotions that are not, uh, we're not born with them. They are developed through interpersonal interactions. They do not contain necessarily, uh, they're not hewed, hewed or honed or toned by evolution. They are the child's way to adapt to its environment and survive its environment. They are uh, essentially adaptive in only a very short period of time in childhood. And then in adult life, they become extremely maladaptive, very harmful. Perhaps the most familiar inhibitory emotional state is anxiety. It's essentially the way that we inhibit the experience, the internal feeling of something that we believe will lead to a rejection or shaming, or someone will essentially turn away or will lose a tribal acceptance from our peers. With men, there's a lot of conditioning, as there are with women. With men, are very often conditioned that they are allowed to feel and express anger, but they are not allowed to feel and express sadness or fear or even loneliness, uh, which are all core states. Women are very often conditioned in our misogynist culture away from being allowed to express anger and uh, hence exceptionally disempowered in our culture because without anger, we cannot confront injustice, we can't express confidence, we can't fight back, we can't essentially set boundaries for ourselves. So we inhibit these emotions to be accepted by the family systems and the people around us. We develop secondary emotions that essentially stop the experiencing of a feeling, an internal state, stop the expression to another person of what's going on, stop the action that we need to take. So um, one of, I think, the most important to understand, I'm going to talk a moment about it, uh, inhibitory emotion is core shame. 
core shame starts out very, very young, and it's an experience that a child has when it doesn't get enough uh, secure attunement, care, love, kindness. And the child, uh, certainly myself in my relationship with my father, who was a very violent drunk in my childhood before he became a Buddhist, he uh, uh, was prone to extreme uh, dysregulated and unpredictable uh, eruptions of rage and violence. And when you're a child, the understanding, well, there's something wrong with my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, my teacher, that doesn't occur to a child. The child only has one explanatory uh, belief system, and that is, it must be something wrong with me. It's essentially the same way early men dealt with uh, the uh, vagaries of nature. Early man said, we must have done something wrong. God's punishing us. The child does exactly the same thing. I must be bad. I must be unlovable. I must not be worthy of attention. That's why this person is not staying with me, is not taking care of me, is not expressing love for me, is not being tender with me, is not making me feel safe, is not making me feel appreciated. There's something wrong with me. And so that core shame uh, hijacks a very natural uh, tribal emotion, which is guilt. But guilt was only meant to be experienced when we did a action that was selfish and harmed our tribal relationships. And guilt is a healthy, vital uh, state that tells us, hey, wait a second, when I took an extra piece of fruit from the communal bowl or whatever they kept their fruit in, that, that doesn't feel so good. Maybe I shouldn't do that again. So guilt is a natural way to steer us towards pro-tribal behaviors. Core shame has nothing to do with anything we've done. In fact, a lot of people as adults feel core shame in the form of imposter syndrome. In the counseling work I do, I work with so many people who are so talented at what they do, and they're doing so much good in the world, um, and yet the dominant thought they have is that I'm going to get found out. You know, if I take a vacation, they're going to realize that, or if I uh, do anything for myself, I'll get fired because I must be a sham. I must be a fraud. I must be doing it wrong. And all of that imposter syndrome steers or stems, I should say not steers, stems from that early childhood feeling, I must be unlovable. I don't know why. I don't know why my sister, my father, my brother, uh, is not talking to me, is only talking to me with this sense of exasperation or this, this look of impatience. I don't know what it is, but it must be there. It must be there. And that sense of there must be something unlovable in me makes us cut off any emotion that we associate with any rejection in our life. It makes us cut off any urge to explore and take risks and to 
uh, essentially express ourselves creatively in front of others. It essentially creates this inhibitory factor. And I want to emphasize now that if you don't have to understand anything I've said other than this one thing about in, uh, inhibitory emotions, core emotions flow up, they want to express themselves, they want to be seen, they want to be known, they want to, they are not under control, they are essentially automatic processes that want to alert ourselves, other people to something, and they want us to take an action. Inhibitory emotions do the exact opposite. The feeling in the body is containment, collapsing, the energy is going down and in. The intention is to, is to not have parts of ourselves be known by others. There's a desire to stop ourselves, not to act, but to essentially uh, contain. So that's how you tell. If the energy feels inconvenient, it wants to come out, it's a core emotion that we have been running from and has now maybe become a bit dysregulated, but it is still a vital force. If the feeling is, I've got to stop this, thing, this energy, it's containing, it's pushing down, it's built on the sense of, oh no, that is not a core emotion. That is not a emotion that has been honed. That is actually an inhibitory, secondary emotion. Uh, I'm giving a very fast go over the work of Diana Fosha, wonderful, wonderful psychological theorist, Leslie Greenberg, um, Peter Fanaghi, uh, all the, this is basically summarizing 20, 30 years of their work into like a half an hour talk. Um, so, uh, some people don't have very much core shame. I find that amazing. <laughs> I'm half neurotic Jew, half Buddhist from New, from New York. I don't know anybody that doesn't have core shame. <laughs> nobody comes to nobody comes to Dharma punks without core shame. <laughs> Just walking in the door. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> but if they see me, they definitely have a lot of core shame. Uh, but if a child, see, in year two of life. The child has gone from one year of getting nothing but love and care, hopefully, appreciation, but around 14 months, 15, 16 months, suddenly the child starts hearing nothing but no, stop, don't. What are you doing? Stop. What? You know, like literally, um, essentially commands of uh, freeze. And when a child hears this, it goes from a state of flow, a state of, uh, of movement, ex exploration is the key attachment state, it's exploring the world, to a sudden state of inhibition, a free state where literally its autonomic nervous system switches on a dime, the shoulders stoop, the child hangs its head. Now, 
if all goes well and that child has heard nothing but enough, gotten nothing but good, secure, loving attention early on before these stop, don't, don't do that. If, if that's the child's experience, the child can learn, okay, that behavior is what's the problem, but I'm not the problem. But if the child uh, didn't get enough of that uh, secure, reliable attention, empathy, care, then the child experiences those stop commands as something's wrong with me, I'm bad. And it creates and it furthers this core shame. So failure to internalize a sense of love and care makes it difficult for us to take risks, fear of being found out, makes us choose unsupportive partners, makes us strive for perfection because we're terrified that people will see that faulty negative thing in me that I think is unlovable. Criticism from anyone else will be extremely painful because it again, it will activate the core shame there's something unlovable about me. People will practice avoidance coping which is avoiding any situation in life where they might be taking a risk or they might have their core uh, emotions be seen. So people who have a lot of core shame don't like to dance, don't like to sing in front of people, don't like to take the risks of uh, spontaneous expression because there's an understandable fear that in so doing, that thing in me that I'm sure is there, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it's there, I know it's unlovable, if I start to act spontaneously, people go, that's it, they'll point at me. You ever see Invasion of the Body Snatchers? <laughs> like that. That's, I think in that movie, besides being a metaphor for McCarthyism, it was also a, a metaphor for that fear we all have of having our core shame finally legitimized by somebody pointing at us and screaming. All right, maybe it's just me that thought that. <laughs> so, that's one way we inhibit our vital core emotions with inhibitory emotions. Again, largely anxiety, shame, some argue depression is a form of an inhibitory emotion in that it's a form of shutting down all emotional experience. The second way, and we're going to be talking a lot about this tomorrow, so I'm not going to delve particularly deep. JMO is going to be really unpacking a lot of this is through defenses. Defenses are behaviors that defend against core emotions that have been associated with rejection that we don't want to feel. Defensive behaviors are essentially processes that um, we become to rely on so that some part of ourselves will not be felt and seen by others, felt by ourselves, seen by others as core emotions, core impulses, core experience. Um, some defenses, of course, can be skillful if they're done in little bits or in balance, uh, self-soothing, Defenses like yoga, exercise, listening to music that soothes us when we're depressed, or positive visualizations, having a cup of tea, 
Self-soothing behaviors are things that don't repress an emotional state. They allow us to be with an emotional state and makes that state a little less overwhelming, a little less flooding, a little less difficult to deal with. So you know that you're doing something as a self-soothing behavior if it's not completely removing the awareness of the feeling, the emotional state that preceded it. But many of our defenses essentially cut out completely the core animating vital primary emotion the, or the wounded parts of ourself. Behavioral defenses are things like uh, when we're lonely, turning on the television, Netflix, binging, watching one episode after another of uh, what was I watching? I was addicted to the show Sharp Objects. Anybody see that? Sharp Objects? Oh my God, I'm mourning. It's great, yeah. It's like some amazing, oh, I weep for our generation. Uh, so I was binging on that one. Also, uh, um, uh, really liking uh, Maniac. Anyway, nobody, nobody knows what the fuck I'm on about. <laughs> I'm alone here in this. But anyway, it's, you, we can use television and binging as a way to combat a feeling of loneliness or isolation. It creates the feeling that there's other people in our life. Other people use food as a way to create the feeling that love is present because when we were children it was the one time that we felt taken care of was when we were being fed. So now as adults when we come home and we're lonely and there's no one there in an empty apartment there might be an inclination to eat as a way to recreate the feeling of being cared about. Some of us might combat feelings of powerlessness, purposelessness, which is associated with dopamine by shopping, which raises the dopamine level, so it gets rid of the feeling, my life doesn't have much purpose in it. Uh, for some of us, it might be workaholism. That's the way I get rid of my feelings of not ever being seen and appreciated in childhood. I will work myself for 15 hours a day in the hope that my co-workers will finally see me and appreciate me and even if they do do that it can't unwrite my childhood so it's a doomed enterprise but still that's uh, some people uh, their managers or their defensive behaviors might be keeping a stiff upper lip despite their the feelings just coming into work acting as if putting a smile on their face it's that all of our defensive behaviors, generally the ones that are seen in public, are we adapt to look good to people. And then we have the ones we do in private that we're ashamed of. And those are the secondary defensive behaviors that really cut off uh, the addictions. And JMO will be deepening into this tomorrow. We also have mental defenses. Worrying is a way to repress vulnerability and fear. Resentment is a way to cut off the feeling of anger. We almost all, when we feel angry with someone, we don't like that feeling because when we were children, anger, when it was felt in the body and expressed through a yell or just this, this anger in the body was shamed and rejected. So instead, we clamp down by telling a story of how unfair and wrong 
And that story, though, interrupts the vital flow of feeling the emotion and actually taking an action based on it. On it. Um, intellectualization, that's my family's patented uh, strategy. Whenever there was any negative emotional state or tension, the immediate conversation wound up going to something that was intellectual and had absolutely nothing to do with what was really being felt at the time. Some people essentially space out and use going into a kind of fog, a disconnection as a way to defend against core emotions. The problem is that when we repress emotions through these defenses, whether they're inhibitory emotions or defensive behaviors, all the emotions we defend against don't go away. Uh, if only they did, I suppose, but no, that wouldn't be a good idea because our emotions are vital to helping us take adaptive action. But the emotions don't go away. What happens is they essentially grow in the background, become dysregulated, and then they start taking, they start driving us to take actions that are essentially um, disproportionate. Sometimes we'll deflect an emotion from one person to another. So if at a job we, we're being uh, shamed or uh, treated with uh, condescension or not being heard, the anger and the frustration uh, will build up and then we will expel it onto somebody else in our life who it's safer to, to expel it. The person who comes home and yells at their partner or their child because they don't feel that they have repressed it for so long at work. Uh, when we completely, again, when we completely hold down emotions as um, uh, Eugene Genlin and other psychologists have said, when they start to come back up, we feel anxiety as we try to push them back down. If we completely succeed for a while and deaden our emotional experience, then that we feel depression, which is a lack of animating force, uh, a state of anhedonia and inability to feel pleasure. And without um, our core emotions, we don't even want to get out of bed. We just want to essentially retreat from the world. So there's hell to pay over time if we allow these inhibitory processes to def defend, cut out, stem the flow, stop the feeling in the body, the arising of the energy of loneliness or fear or sadness or uh, joy or excitement or shock. If we stem that flow, we cut it off, it just doesn't go away, it becomes dysregulated, we take it out on the wrong source, our actions become maladaptive, and we rely more and more and more on defensive behaviors, and it becomes a loop where our defensive behaviors now become addictions, because we no longer can feel these feelings at all, we have to drink or do something all the time to keep the emotions at bay. The third truth is that we can lead integrated lives where the thinking and the emotional brain can work together in tandem. That this is not a, we are not, uh, that we, there is a way to actually harness and liberate and be with our emotions and allow them to play vital roles in uh, 
helping us to adapt to our interpersonal lives. And yet, we can also rely on the thinking, the, the inner chatter, the, the cognitive mind, the conceptual thought can play a role when it's needed to help inhibit when the emotions have become dysregulated. And they can also let us know when we're not actually in a primary emotion, when we're in a defensive emotion or a defensive behavior. They can actually do a lot of things for us, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But the key of the way, in summary, to live an integrated life is one, to feel emotions without cutting them off. That means internally. I was on a bike ride over the Williamsburg Bridge, and uh, while I was going over it, this guy suddenly stopped in the bike lane and parked his bike across both lanes and started taking a photograph of the river. And I stopped, because I was doing what I normally do, which was thinking of a Dharma talk in my head. I was like, not mindful, and then I saw his bike and I you know, came to a stop, and then I gave him my best uh, shaming look that I could muster. <laughs> I, I didn't do the full New York, which is in me, which is like, what the fuck? <laughs> I didn't do that. I could have done that, but I didn't. I just gave him a, a very shaming look of, maybe there was some disgust in there, that might have been part of it too. And then I wheel by him and continue to ride, ride down the bridge. And then the guy called after me, sorry I ruined your night, asshole. <laughs> and as I rode down that bridge, the resentment, every story wanted to cut off the emotion which was stemming, starting to come up in my stomach that wanted me to go back and tell that person to, you know, fuck off, wanted to scream because I'm, a, I'm not a, I'm a Buddhist one, so that's not a good look, but two, <laughs> the one fight I ever was in in my life, I was throwing punches like that, so it's, it's not going to happen. So I was trying to cut off the anger, and uh, so it was just this story about yuppies and gentrification that was like running through my mind. And uh, so finally, I got to the bottom of the bridge, and I was like, I don't want to be in this head anymore. So I just stopped, and I just got in touch with that anger. I just was like, okay, how does it feel to have this person essentially blame me for something I didn't do that was clearly unskillful on their part and literally try to shame me when they were the ones who were acting in a transgressive way. How does that feel? And my stomach was like, fuck! The energy was like coming up and I was starting to shake and I was like, my jaw was locked and I wanted to almost scream. And I got, it was beautiful. I got, I felt anger and all of its beauty. And I was even half tempted to like go back up and not yell at him, but say, hey, you know, that's not okay. To set a boundaries, to stay, you know, to confront what I thought, but it was a ride back up the Williamsburg Bridge, it was exhausting. <laughs> so I went, I actually talked to my friend Barkley about it, just like, 
you know, expressed how I felt. And he wanted to go off then on yuppies and gentrification, but I kept going back and no, I just want to say there was just this feeling of this shall not pass that, that I felt. <laughs> but that was, because I did that, because I felt and I didn't stem, I didn't keep cutting off the emotion, I didn't carry it around, it was gone. I felt it, I expressed it to someone, it was gone. That's beautiful, that's integrated. That's the way that emotions are processed. They're not cut off. They are, if we need to take an adaptive action, we do, but at least we feel them and we express them. We get attunement from someone else, we get empathy, and then the emotion has played its role. We've done something that we follow the adaptive evolutionary installed purpose. Finally, lastly, if there is a um, if there is a fourth truth of uh, so the first I'm sorry the the three noble truths the third truth is feeling without cutting off expressing and then acting upon them skillfully when it's appropriate and. Some psychologists say when we do this, we wind up in the five C's. We feel calm, curious, connected, compassionate, and confident because we have processed our core emotions. We are not, we are not running from uh, internal impulses that we're ashamed of. There's no core fear, and so we feel this state of, of great connectedness. So how do we do this? Um, we're doing it on this retreat, but to get to this vaunted state, um, uh, whether we're working with emotions stemming from early childhood experiences or from the present, our goal is the same, to know if we are connecting with a core emotional experience or if we are defending against the core emotional experience or inhibitory emotion. And so we're doing this by, one, sustaining regular embodied awareness, feeling into the core areas of the body where emotions are expressed. And as I like to say, the, if you have any doubt, uh, find the root of the vagal vagus nerve that runs down your face, your throat, your chest, which expresses, so your face expresses Sadness, very often, joy. Uh, the throat is a feeling of not being heard, being shut out, being cut off, being uh, not seen, very often a tight throat. A tight or, or heaviness in the chest can be an abandonment, a loneliness, a sadness, uh, this feeling of, of you know, heartbreak, which is simply the vagal vagus nerve clutching clamping around the uh, heart, and then very often fear is uh, a tight belly. Disgust might be a feeling of almost wanting to throw up or a, a feeling of sickness in the throat. Joy is not only this, this sense of lightness in the body, but this feeling of animated, um, it's a, it's a we all know the smile and the sense of elation, the, the energy so flowing up, so wanting to express itself in a liberated, um, vis viscerally clear way. Um, so we feel 
and we sustain that awareness. We keep an eye always on what is the internal experience, especially in the front of the body, the face, throat, chest, belly. The second is we find safe disclosure. The Buddha said there's no spiritual path without finding safe, wise friends to share about our experience. That's what's called Kalyanamita. And the Mita Sutta, the Buddha defines it as somebody who's reliable, somebody who tolerates even our most painful feelings and our painful states of beings, who doesn't abandon us, who lets us know when we're about to act on an impulse that could cause harm, someone who's available, who makes us feel safe, and as we'll talk about tomorrow, these are almost exactly the same needs we have for attachment and secure base in childhood and we need throughout our entire life. So there's no regulating our emotions. There's no sustaining, um, I would say, emotional health and well-being unless we not only feel our emotions, but that we find safe people to express them to, because emotions are set to be expressed. They are tribal. They are adaptive and tribal. The third quality is wisdom. Some people call it metacognition in today's psychoanalytic literature. It's to know when to turn to the body for intuition and guidance, but there's sometimes we have wisdom that says, Oops, this is one situation in life where I don't want to trust my core emotions because in the past, my core emotions in this setting have actually not been helpful. Those of us who might be aware of our attachment styles, if we have anxious attachment and we tend to be excited by uh, people who are emotionally unavailable and we start to feel that feeling of excitement and uh, desire and lust or uh, wanting to be with this person, that's the one time we want to say, okay, I'll feel the underlying emotions and feelings, but I'm not going to act upon them. I'm going to share about them with my friend in SLAA or my therapist or somebody who knows and cares about me. Um, sometimes we need Wisdom to know which people are safe to disclose to and which people are not safe to disclose to. Robin Dunbar, the anthropologist, argues that historically people have always had about five friends that they disclose their emotions to. Not one, as in our contemporary culture, we all believe there's that special someone and when I meet them, I'll move to a cabin upstate and we'll have a dog and everything will be great. No, it won't. You'll drive each other crazy because you won't be able to regulate all your emotions. We all need community. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, you heard it here first. Uh, and we have to learn which behaviors indicate we're in a form of avoidance. Um, sometimes we can be in those defensive behaviors that will have us avoid triggering situations that we could actually learn to tolerate or we could actually, or there's things that we rely on. We have to learn to spot when we are defending 
against something that's deeper so that we can begin to open up and touch and begin to regulate and connect with all these vital processes. So we have a little time. I'm going to lead us through a practice now where we're going to connect in the second and third um, foundations. Yeah. So, this is the time for a sit, so I'm going to use it for a sit. So let's just first come to that state of, of uh, we could call it, the state of ease so that we can stay present and be with whatever emotions and impulses need to be touched on. So take a moment just to take, we'll, we'll do our three breaths I like uh, to take a nice full in-breath lift your shoulders if you like hold them up breathe out drop just let, like you're putting down two heavy bags and just gently if it feels right for your body gently pull them a little bit back to open up your chest second in-breath pull in the belly just tight for a moment and then breathe out and as the breath goes out imagine you're blowing out all the stress and tension just release all the the tendency to hold in the belly which is such a form of inhibition because so many vital emotions express themselves in the belly just release. And then third in breath, squinching the muscles in the face, tightening the jaw, the eyes, squinching the nose, the forehead, and then breathing out. Just releasing all the, any tightness that we've had in the jaw, any tightness in the micro muscles around the eyes, smoothing out the forehead, and especially invite the eyes to sink and relax into the eye sockets. If you want a tip to attain a great, fast way to achieve a greater degree of ease, it's not only through the deep in-breath and the long, smooth out-breath, it's also through settling the eyes. When the eyes are darting behind the eyelids, very hard to settle the mind because the mind is still in search, vigilance. But when the eyes start to settle like they've decided to sink into a really comfortable lounge chair in the eye sockets and they don't look around, then the mind starts to settle.
And then bringing that awareness to the our present experience that we would hope to have from everyone else that we interact with a kind of no judgment, no rejection, no criticism, an awareness that conveys everything is accepted. There's nothing wrong with what I'm experiencing at all. And that's just the kind of awareness of this uh, internal empathy that we're trying to cultivate as a, a key to healing. The kind of care we would give to someone we love that needed our attention, the kind of care we would want to receive from someone that we turn to for attention, how can we cultivate that within? And then first touching on just whatever dominant sensations are present. These sensations can be just non-emotional body sensations like a stiff back or a, a tight uh, sense of uh, locking in, the, in uh, the legs or maybe a, any ambient pain that's pretty present or just dominant sensation and just practicing with this dominant cessation, especially if it's unpleasant, cultivating a, an awareness that doesn't reject it, that doesn't want it to go away, that doesn't want it to do anything, just wants to observe it, even though it might be uncomfortable, and if, as Jamo was saying, if it's a very strong pain, then you can go back to some part of the body that feels really good. And pendulum back and forth from the part of my palms almost always feel really relaxed. So if I'm feeling the tightness in my knee or my lower back, and I just go into the sensation and back to the safety, building up that awareness that is kind, accepting, gentle, appreciative, non-rejecting.
So now let's bring that kind, that quality of awareness, that quality of attention to the areas of the body we're talking about, the areas that are most uh, expressive, I tend to believe, of emotions, the front of the body where we both feel and signal emotional states to others, the stomach, chest, throat, face, even the shoulders. And just how do you feel right now? What am I feeling? How does it feel to be here? The second night of a retreat, after a full day of practice, what's present? And try not to legislate that we have only one emotion that can be both a sense of peace and a sense of maybe a tinge of sadness or loneliness or... Human beings have multiple emotions and they're just as vital and adaptive What's present right now? What do I need to know? Even the slightest visceral sensation in the the belly, tightness or comfort or discomfort, approach feelings of relax and ease, body opening, pleasurable, withdraw emotions, tightening, or tension sometimes, but not inhibiting just those states in the body that correspond to our core, purest emotional states. If there was no judgment, if we felt no fear about rejection, if there was no possibility of being shamed or embarrassed, what would we feel right now? If you're not really feeling a clear sense of this embodied foundation, a feeling that is the core internal experience of an emotion, visualize something that happened recently that was startling, that caught you off guard, Hold the image in your mind and ask yourself, how does it feel? See if you can find even the subtlest shift in feelings in the front of the body.
You might also feel feelings sometimes in the skin of kind of tingling. And if you have a sense of what emotional state is present, it's helpful to give it just the first label that comes to mind, knowing what state we're in can be helpful when it comes time to communicate it with someone. While we do it largely non-verbally, we can use words. Now let's look to the mood that's present, the non-physiological components of emotions, the state of attention. Does the mind feel filled with energy as it does with excitement and joy, even with anger? Or does the mind feel kind of heavy, kind of dark, kind of weighted down as it does with sadness, grief. Is there a shrinking away from sensations as we do with fear where we really want to, or that state of wanting to get away, aversion, Or does the mind want to get closer? Is there a state of attraction, craving? Well, I've talked a lot about the physical sensations of emotions. There's also these attentional states that they also contain. Does my mind feel open and spacious and welcoming, or does it feel very tight? open the state of joy. Tight and claustrophobic very often, fear, disgust. Shock can be conveyed by an attention that's very pinned to one object and doesn't notice anything else. 
how do we know what mood, emotion we're in just by paying attention to attention itself, mind itself? Does our mind jump about from one thing to another? Excitement. Does the mind find it difficult to focus on anything? Sadness, depression. Let's practice with a activating image. Bring to mind some event, new, another event than the first one that also caught us off guard, that triggered a lot of thought that we haven't yet fully wrapped our head around, as we say, come to a sense of peace with or a sense of understanding meaning that the underlying emotions have been cut off and we haven't truly felt them. So bring to mind some event that was recent that we still haven't grasped in some way. Just hold the image and ask, how does, what, are, what is that like? What do I experience? What happens when I, when I bring this to mind? And just note, is it difficult to be with the image or does the mind feel attracted to the image or is there a sense of aversion? What happens in the mind when we hold this memory do we want to push it away? Do we want to hold on to it? Do we want to uh, focus in on one part alone of it? Do we want to, what happens to attention? Do we want to just fog out and not have it, get rid of it by just Facing out. So letting go of any image, 
And in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl. And again, for the rest of the evening, if you could periodically check into the quality of feelings, the quality of the mood, the, the nonverbal quality of the mind, the attentional state, and just using the awareness of those two factors, come to some understanding of what emotional state you're in, If it feels like something that's contracting, stopping, see if you can ask, but what is really need to, what really needs to be felt and find something beneath it, some energy that wants to be known, that wants to push outwards, some, something that's more animated.